Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Hello, my name is Sarah Moss Fletcher. I'm on staff at Chi Alpha. And uh, hello, yeah, hi. <laughs> it is my joy to be bringing the word tonight. So uh, it was planned in advance that I would speak tonight, but if you were at Fall Retreat, you know that our speaker got sick and Pete had to preach all weekend. So I think the Lord knew and said, Pete needs a break and I can speak. Amen. <laughs> uh, so Pete, glad to give you a break. And I am always grateful for a chance to bring the word because the word of God is powerful, Right. And uh, it's so good to be in the Word together. So today we're continuing in our series in John, uh, Come and See, a journey through the book of John. And our logo is a sign, and that's actually highly strategic because the book of John is known as the book of signs. Uh, The first half of the book actually has many signs that John, John uses that word signs to talk about miracles. Uh, And the reason he doesn't just call them miracles is because they're not just powerful in and of themselves, but rather they are pointing towards something greater, something true, as signs do, right? There are all sorts of signs. Uh, Primarily, we would maybe think of road signs. Road signs are very important. How many of you look at speed limits and think that's not that important? But how many of you look at a... (laughs) How many of you look at a uh, no left turn on green and think that's important. A little more important. You wouldn't know. I was a bus driver at UVA. Can I tell you, those of you who don't follow road laws, you are so lucky. Oh my goodness, because those buses are huge. They're tanks. They can take you out, but the Lord has been good to you and spared you. Uh, How many of you have been in a car with a friend who completely ignores road signs and you're like, I didn't know we were meeting Jesus today? are that friend. (laughs) May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious towards you. You need it. Uh, So signs are valuable. Signs help us. Yes, some might feel silly, but some are very, very serious. Um, But also signs are just valuable. I enjoy signs. I'm going to show you guys a few signs. Uh, Here's a sign that is really, really good for me. I like it. Keep wildlife wild. This sign was made for someone like me. I went to the Grand Canyon with Blair Brake and Jen Moss, and the first thing we see are these squirrels, and they just beg at you. They look at you. They're like, do you have food? And I'm like, baby, look at this squirrel. It's so cute. Do you need water? Are you thirsty? We're in a desert. Do you need something? And then I see these signs, and I learn, did you know that the most dangerous animal in the Grand Canyon is the squirrel? Literally. On a busy weekend at the Grand Canyon, 30 or more people will go to the hospital because a squirrel bit them. And you might be thinking, like, couldn't there be, like, a bear bite? Isn't that a lot worse? Well, guess what? Squirrels can give you rabies and the plague. So I really like this sign. This is one of my favorite signs. Uh, In the same way that there are signs that I like that are made for people like me, there are signs that I don't like. 
uh, a sign that I don't like. Even though I'm a person who likes signs, that doesn't mean I'm good with directions. And one day I found myself on a hike in Penn Park. I was living with Kathy and Josh Fairchild at the time and thought, let's get some air. It's a delightful day. Went on a walk and I think this looks like a nice trail. It's probably a loop. So it's been about an hour and a half and the sun's starting to go down and I think, man, I really thought I'd make my way back around. It's got a golf course. Back around to the golf course start by now. And it starts getting darker and darker and darker and I think, oh no, it's not a loop. Man, I wish there'd been a sign. So I decide, I think the golf course office? What do you call that? Lobby? Shop? Pro shop. Pro shop. I think the pro shop is that way. And I decide who needs roads. So I set my way off into the woods, walking through the woods, passing things off, you know, trying to get there because I'm sure it's that direction. It gets darker, it gets darker, it gets darker. You know, I'm peering through the twilight, trying to see ahead. And then in the distance, I see this shape that I can tell is a sign. I think I'm saved. I found the path back to the pro shop. So I get closer to the sign. Again, it's dark, so I have to get really close. I have to like move a branch out of the way to see what it says. And it says, this way to the cemetery. <laughs> Why is there a cemetery at the golf course? Oh. That is my least favorite sign in Charlottesville. You might ask, why is there no picture of it? And it's because I refuse to go back. Uh, I hiked my way still through the woods until I found myself on the back nine, and then I just walked up the sidewalk at night till I finally made it back to the pro shop and made my way home. So not every sign is a good sign. Some signs you say, I don't want to go that direction. Uh, and then there is one more sign I would love to show you. It is my favorite sign in Charlottesville because do you ever see a sign that's out of context? Like you're like, that sign was not supposed to go there. Those signs I find hilarious. So I stumbled across this one day. I was driving around, I had made a wrong turn. I, I had pulled around and I see this sign and it just like, it was so funny that I had to stop. I just sat in my car for three minutes and now sometimes when I have a bad day, I go drive there and I look at it and I laugh till I feel better and then I go home. <laughs> so, oh, that's the back of it. I wanted to build suspense. Uh, look at this setting. Just think, you know, what, what might that sign say? You know, who, who could say? Maybe there's a pedestrian crossing. Maybe there's a watch out for squirrels sign. Who could say? Look at that. Just right there. Oh. <laughs> Blair took this picture today for me while I was working on my sermon. Uh, yeah, I just bring people here sometimes so we can have a good day and laugh. Uh, first person to find this sign, I'll buy you a Roots Bowl. Great. So, signs. Hint, it is somewhere on 29. I like signs, most signs. Signs are valuable. But there are different types of signs, right? Not all of them are a literal sign. We have signs that a relationship isn't working. There are signs that maybe you should change your major. Anybody else think that chemistry second semester was just one really, really long sign? <sighs> and yes, 
like in John, even signs that God is at work and he is pointing towards something that he wants you to know or that he is doing in your life. We are going to be looking at a sign from John today and trying to understand what is it pointing towards. Specifically then, once we see the sign, what do we do about it? Let's read in John chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. If not, we will have verses on the screen. Uh, And we are going to be reading the story of a healing that is more than a miracle. It is also a sign. Everybody there? Yeah? Feeling good? I didn't grow up a Christian. I became a Christian in Kyle for my first year. It takes me forever to find things in the Bible still. So it's okay. No pressure. Starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw, this is Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in this time, blindness was actually incredibly common. There were a lot of unsanitary conditions, not a lot of medical procedures, and so people would go blind, uh, especially from unsafe water. And so blindness was so common that when Jesus was telling a parable about Uh, who to invite to a party, he talked about inviting the blind. This was a huge category. And the thing was, once you went blind, there was pretty much no hope. There was just no way to fix it. So you were stuck. And because they didn't totally understand why people were going blind or how to fix these things, a lot of people commonly believed that if you were blind, it was because you were paying for either your sins or the sins of your parents. So the disciples are talking about something that's just sort of culturally accepted. Whose fault is it? His or his parents? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am, it. I am the light of the world. Rather confusing. Don't worry, we're going to solve it. After saying this, he spit on the ground, this is a funny miracle, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. Thanks, John. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. I am. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. And he gives an answer that he'll give a lot in this, which is, I don't know. All right, so here's the sign. It's a miracle. It's pointing towards something. We know that John wants to tell us this story for a reason. So how are they going to handle the sign? Continues in verse 13. They brought the Pharisees to the, uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, which is not a bad response, maybe. Uh, these were the guys who knew the most about God, supposedly. They knew the law. So basically, they're the experts. And the people of the town come and say, hey, how should we interpret this? What do we do about this? And the blind guy at this point is probably like, seriously, can't we just celebrate? I was blind. Now I see you can't call me blind guy anymore. You should probably learn my name. Um, Can't we just celebrate what just happened? And yet, verse 14, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, 
The Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Backstory to this is it was illegal to heal on the Sabbath or illegal. It was, it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. It was considered breaking the Sabbath. It was a type of work. The man replied, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. And this was enough to say that Jesus had broken the Sabbath according to at least their understanding of the Sabbath. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. Basically, how do you interpret the sign? The man replied, he's a prophet. Makes sense. Guy works a miracle. You've only seen people of God work. Not a bad guess, but they don't like it. They keep pushing. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Can I tell you, this is actually highly, highly serious. Being put out of the synagogue was terrible. It would impact who you could marry. It would impact what jobs you could have. It would impact your own commerce. It would impact even sometimes your property if you were allowed to hold it. Because to not be a part of the synagogue was not to be a part of the center of community. To be rejected from it was to be rejected from that community. Verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Blind dude's frustrated now, previously blind dude. Maybe even a bit sarcastic. He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And at this point, blind dude's teaching the Pharisees. And the thing is, he's right, actually. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there any story of any person having been born blind who is healed. Maybe healed if they had become blind, but not born blind. And yet, in the Old Testament, there are prophecies. If you're a note taker and you like to write in your margins, the prophecies are in Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, and 42, 7. That's 29, 18, 35, 5, and 42, 7. About how when the kingdom of God is ushered in by the Messiah, blind eyes will be opened as a sign of the dawning of a new day. Take note of that. Great. And to this They replied, you were steeped in sin at 
birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's pause there. Okay, so we've got the basics, right? Jesus says something about being the light of the world to his disciples. He heals a blind man. The now seeing man goes home and everybody is like, what does this mean? What do we do with this? Especially because it was on a Sabbath. And the Pharisees say he healed on the Sabbath, which obviously means he isn't from God. And the healed man says he healed me. So obviously he's from God and the people are left to decide, right? Is Jesus a sinner or a saint? Is he a prophet or is he a I wrote a word and then I forgot it. Poser. <sighs> Seems straightforward enough, right? And the Pharisees are at this point are like, what kind of sign is this? What are you talking about? It's like a train crossing sign in a parking lot. It makes no sense. And if anything, it's troublesome and it's confusing for people. This sign doesn't point to anything. But we as modern day readers are missing some key context that actually makes this scene a lot more consequential. Because let's be honest, a train crossing sign in a parking lot is pretty funny, but a train crossing sign at a train crossing is pretty serious. You want that sign in the proper context. And so we need to know, what does this sign mean in context? And is it really what the Pharisees are saying? So, may I help you? Would you like some context? Yes, you would. All of you people who like history or connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament, get ready. It's so good. All right. So all of chapters 7, 8, and 9 in the book of John are actually happening at the same time in a religious calendar in Israel, which is the Feast of Booths, or what is also called the Feast of the Tabernacle tabernacle. And so what it is, is it's a week-long feast. It starts on a Sabbath. It ends on a Sabbath. That is this big, big celebration where all the people of Israel come to the central city to celebrate. And what they're celebrating is two things, basically. It's, it's kind of a dual celebration. First, their deliverance in the past from God out of Egypt. So it's celebrating the time that he led them through the desert it's the Feast of Booths because they live in little booths for the week, which is supposed to represent them wandering through the desert. Um, so him leading them through the desert by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night until he brought them into the promised land where his presence then filled the temple and they got to live where God had placed them in his promised land. Past deliverance, good party, good time. Next thing it points to is actually future deliverance. This festival points towards the time when the Messiah will come and it will be kind of the bigger and better out of Exodus that it will actually be the time that God's kingdom is established and all nations will come and praise God, that justice will reign, that his kingdom will reign forever and that God will be God over all peoples as he has always been but has not always been recognized as. So it is pointing towards a past deliverance and a future deliverance. And it actually has some really incredible symbols that would be a part of this feast. Hold with me. So during the feast, they would read out of Zechariah. And it has these two incredible symbols. I think we have a slide for it. Cool. So it's talking about it, the day of the Lord coming. And on that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. And so this was saying when the Messiah came, it would be like light, 
was always there. There would be no such thing as night. He would be their light. In the same way that the pillar of fire led them through the desert, he, his light would fill the kingdom. And then it goes on, on that day, the day the Lord is coming, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Light and water were these two central symbols to the festival and to the feast. And there were actually some rites around it. So water, every single day of the feast, priests would, at the time of the morning sacrifice, they would imagine the temple on the top of a hill. They would walk down through the city till they got to the pool of Siloam. Which pool? <laughs> and they would draw water from it. And as they drew water from it with like a golden flask, uh, there would be a choir that would be singing out of Isaiah, Isaiah 12.3. That's 12.3. With joy, you will draw water out of the wells of salvation. And the reason they drew from the pool of Siloam is because it actually came from a spring, which made it living water. Living water was something that came from God himself. So it would come from rain or it would come from a spring. And for all the rites of Moses, all their particular ceremonies, you needed living water if you were going to use water. So this was a special water that they would bring back up to the temple. They would pour out on the altar. And that would be pointing towards when God would be living water for them. How does Jesus interact with this? Because Jesus, in chapters 7, 8, and 9, is at the feast, because they all are. Everybody is there. And so, in John 7, he waits until the great day of the feast, which is the seventh day, which is actually, really, you guys, this is so good. This is so good. The only day that they don't draw water. Every other day they draw water, but this one day, they don't. They march around the altar seven times. It doesn't matter, but they don't. And on that day, Jesus, who's been silent pretty much the whole time, says in John 7, 37 through 39, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This was a big statement, and it divided all of the people who listen. Do you guys catch that? Like, that's really big. Jesus saying that is really, really big. Water. Light. This one's really fun. Every single day of the festival, it would close with the evening sacrifice, and then all the people would come to the temple, and they would light these four giant torches. And by giant, I mean they were 70 feet tall. I tried to look up like a picture of this, but obviously they didn't have cameras in 29 AD, and there just weren't a lot of good paintings. So I tried to find something else that's 70 feet tall. Um, apparently 70, or sorry, seven medium-sized elephants on top of each other are 70 feet tall. That didn't feel helpful either. Uh, the White House is 70 feet tall. The White House. These torches were as tall as the White House. The, uh, the priests had to climb ladders to get up to them. And remember, the temple's on top of a hill. So there's the, oh yeah. Did you know that the temple is actually double that size? Can you imagine that? The temple in Jerusalem is twice that size. Tall-wise, not wide-wise. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, so there's these giant torches. And their light filled the city 
rabbinical literature actually says that women could sift wheat to the light from these torches, which is basically to say you could do a puzzle. Like, it's just amazing. It was so much light at night. And there'd be this giant party where they'd all dance. It was lots of music. What do you think the light represented? The presence of God. The fire that led them. The light that would come from the Messiah that would fill the earth. It represented the presence of God. And Jesus. It's the day after the festival. It's the final Sabbath, which is kind of, oh, I'm sorry, you guys. I read a lot about this. It's really interesting, but I can't tell you everything. It's kind of like a fake day of the ceremony or of the festival. It was supposed to be seven days, but then there's another Sabbath, so they can't leave anyway. So it's just sort of like an extra celebration day. Um, but there were no more, no more torches. And Jesus, on this Sabbath day, stands at the temple in front of the remnants of these torches. And he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he's leaving the temple after making this statement and some following conversation. And that is when he encounters the man born blind. And that is when he enacts the sign of the miracle of healing him and bringing light into a man who had only ever lived in darkness's life. That's a lot more than an empty parking lot. That is a rail that says the Messiah will be marked by light, a rail that says the Messiah will be marked by living water, and a big sign of Jesus performing a miracle that could only be performed in the time of the Messiah. Jesus isn't just healing on the Sabbath because he likes to rile up the Pharisees. That would probably be fun. Jesus is doing this because he is trying to make an undeniable statement about who he is, and that is the Messiah from heaven. This is a sign that every single one of them should have understood because they just participated in this festival and they saw Jesus say, I am living water, it will flow from me. And they saw him say, I am the light of the world. When people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, I'm like, <laughs> what? He did it all over the place. We just don't have the context to see it. There is such rich context in the scriptures. And now... That is where we see our sign. Does that help you? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, take some religious studies classes. They're great. Um, God still does this. God gives signs all the time. God wants us to understand him. God enters our context and gives us signs that we'll understand. God wants you to know who he is. God wants you to be in, as his people. God wants you to have him as your light. God wants you to have living water flow out of you by the Holy Spirit that indwells in you because he went to the cross. God wants to do this. We have signs in our lives all the time. They're as common as road signs. They're all over the place. God wants to know you. He whispers to us. He shows up in our devotional lives. He shows up when friends pray for us, when we're struggling to believe that we can do the work that he has called us to do, and they speak words of truth to us, right? He moves in giving us strength when we feel like we can't continue through the day. And he still works in miracles, too. 
I know that they're a little rare, but they happen. I've had friends healed from deafness. I've seen someone speak in a language that they didn't know because God told them to go share the gospel with someone. I, like, I'm not kidding. I was leading a spring break trip and it happened. The kid came back and he was like, that was so weird. <laughs> God wants people to know him so badly and there are signs all over the place. Have you seen him? Some of you have seen him, right? And it's wonderful when you get it. But the reality is when you see a sign, you can decide whether to obey it or not. You can decide whether to believe it or not. You can decide, that's ah, suggested. You can decide, it's the speed limit. I could go a little past that. Signs matter. And yet, let's be honest, when God speaks to us, as again, I'm believing many of you have heard and seen in this room, something happens afterwards. Have any of you ever experienced doubt? You don't have to raise your hand. It's not one of those moments. But you can make eye contact with me if you have. Have you ever had a moment with God, maybe at a retreat, maybe on your own reading the scriptures, and then it seems like just a couple days later, something tried to just obscure that sign, tried to make you think maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Does that ever happen to you? I don't know if it's the work of the enemy, if it's entropy, if it's our own sin, but there are so many things that try to distract us from the signs that God is giving us that lead us to say, I couldn't be the Messiah. But I believe that God wants to help us in our doubt. In the same way he wants to give us signs, he wants to help us when things try to obscure those signs. In our last few moments, I want to look at what does the blind now seeing man do when he faces doubt. So he's facing this trial of Pharisees who should have understood better than anyone. And yet, they keep pressing, they keep saying, and we see doubt one, they try to make him doubt in God. Hmm, we should have a slide. It's okay if we don't. Sometimes we face doubts in God. They say, we know this man is a sinner. You're, you're, you don't understand. You don't know God. God wouldn't go that way. God wouldn't look like that. How many of you have ever faced that question like, I don't believe in God because God wouldn't do that. Or like, how could a good God allow suffering? That's a real question, right? How would a good God allow denominations to exist? I'm not trying to say questions are bad. Questions are good. I'm a question asker. But the reality is sometimes our questions become the swamping of doubt. And sometimes there's so many questions at once we don't know what to do. And yet the blind man says... Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. <sighs> Basically, I don't know everything. I don't get it all. But I do know that what I have personally experienced of Jesus is good. And he does himself a kindness here. He allows himself to not have to answer all of the questions at once before he believes. He doesn't abandon the miracle just because he doesn't fully understand why he used clay or why it was on a Sabbath. or, You know, he lets himself hold both. And he tells himself, I don't need to know everything to believe something. When you face doubt about God, when you face questions, 
Don't let it turn into this swamping emotion. Give yourself some grace to say, I don't need to know everything to believe something, especially when I've experienced a living God. Second, they try to make him doubt himself. They ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Multiple times. It's like at this point, they're basically gaslighting him. They literally try to be like, is this even your son? Like, are you sure you remember? Are you sure that's the way it happened? Are you sure? How many of you have ever doubted an experience you had with God because it's like a year later and you're like, did it really happen that way? Did I really feel the presence of God? Did he really speak in that person to pray that over me, which was so perfect in the moment, but am I just remembering it wrong? And sometimes I find that the Pharisees aren't other people. The Pharisees are me. And it's like, I'm on trial with myself. Did it happen? Are you sure? Like, yes, it did. Are you sure? And the reality is, this is why we journal. (laughs) Because we have poor memories. I have a terrible memory. The Bible is filled with with people um, being reminded of things. That's why they have feasts in the first place, is because our memory gets a little sketchy or we try to deceive ourselves. But the reality is, God did it. Maybe you have to journal it to be, you know, to help yourself out in the future. But you don't have to doubt your experience with God. He's good. He's powerful. He moved. He wants to know you. And the blind man says, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? It's okay to just hold on to your story when other people question it when your friends push because you came back from a semester at UVA and you are so different, when your family wonders why you've changed so much. Nobody can take your story from you. Nobody can take your experience from you. They can doubt the healing all they want, but the reality is the blind man sees, right? Has the Lord ever helped you see something? Don't let people's accusations take that away from you. And finally... Doubt that comes from the cost of following Jesus because the reality is there is a cost. The man who healed him, he refused to say that he didn't and because of it, he was kicked out of the synagogue. There is a cost to following Jesus. This is the hardest one, I think, because costs are hard to pay. I'm the only Christian in my family. They don't get it. They don't understand. I've lost a lot of things because of that. I have friends who don't know Jesus who feel like they're farther away from me because they don't understand my passions. Or even just being in a world that doesn't always honor faith, that sees it as something maybe ridiculous or even dangerous. There are costs for everyone to follow Jesus. The question is, is seeing worth it? And that's where I want to close tonight as the band comes forward. The real miracle happens as the cost is being paid. The text continues, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is a title used for the future figure whose coming will signal the end of history and the time of God's judgment and the time of God's reign. And the man asked, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Because he has a Jewish tradition and he knows that the Son of Man is pointing towards the Messiah. He knows that the Son of Man is pointing to the time when God will finally come and make all things right in the world. 
Do you all see darkness in the world? Do you look at the news and feel swamped in darkness and wonder how will we ever get out of this? How will there ever be healing? How will there ever be hope? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The physical healing was a miracle. It's true. But the real miracle of the passage is that. Because at that moment, that man experienced a spiritual sight. He saw the Messiah. He saw the hope that was coming and he was able to believe in it. Him who had walked in darkness his entire life, even while he saw, finally saw the person of God. Finally heard the voice of God that he had already heard. And finally saw the source of his hope. And it wasn't the marriage he wasn't sure he would get. And it wasn't the job he wasn't sure he would get. And it wasn't the status in his community that he wasn't sure he would get. It was the God who was standing in front of him, who had the power to help him see, not just physically, but spiritually, that there was actually hope for him, for his community, for the brokenness of the world. And sometimes doubt is going to try to make you ask, is it worth it? what the blind man did is he knelt at the feet of Jesus and he worshipped. That's what we're about to do. We're about to worship a living God who has healed many of us but some of us are still struggling physically. Who has given us sight in many ways but we have questions, right? Who knows that there are people who don't understand our faith, who question us, who just want us to go back to the person we used to be, but he knows that something better is coming and he wants to love them too. He wants to use you to reach out to them. So as you stand with me, I would say, those of you who are new to this and you're just checking out Jesus, welcome. I'm glad you have questions. Ask your questions. This is a place to ask them because I believe that Jesus wants to meet you here and through this community. Those of you who are like the Pharisees, maybe, I've been here, and you can look at the miracle and you should know better, but you just feel like you want to reject it because maybe it just costs too much. Can we turn tonight and look to the Lord and say, you are the Messiah and I want to worship you tonight because you're worth it. Some of you have to put that before the Lord tonight. God, help me to see that it's worth it. Remind me of the joy of my salvation. Don't let a doubt steal that from me. And some of you, maybe you're in this blissful period where you just had a moment like that this weekend and you just need to worship God because man, we could just worship God every day, couldn't we? He's so worthy. Amen. Thank you. all So as we sing tonight, wherever you are, I want you to know you don't have to start singing right away. Approach God. He wants to meet with you. He might have a sign for you tonight. He might have something to say to you tonight. Make that space. And then as you're ready, let's praise a holy God who is bringing light into the darkness of this world. Thank you for what you did on that cross. Thank you for
for the grace in it. God, thank you for the gift of salvation. We proclaim you are the Messiah. You are the light of the world. You are the source of how living water, your Holy Spirit came to be in each one of us who believes. And Lord, we pray that grace over everyone we love who does not yet know your name, over our friends, over our families, over these grounds. God, may they see as you have gifted us to see. May they be healed even as you're healing us. God, from the wounds of our lives, from our sins. God, we need you. Thank you for every sign you've placed in our life. And God, place a few more. Help us through our questions. Help us not to be swamped in doubt, but to claim the miracle of the God on the cross who died for me, for us. We praise your holy name. Amen. Well, for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious towards you and turn his countenance toward you. And may he give you peace. Shalom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go out and have a great rest of your week. It has been delightful to spend the night with you. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 